Hi, welcome to the Daiku Podcast. I'm Gary Snow. Today I welcome Stu Horvath, the author of Monsters, Aliens, and Holes in the Ground, which chronicles how RPGs have evolved since their inception. Stu is also the co-host of the Vintage RPG Podcast, along with John Hambo McGuire, and also the publisher of the Unwinnable website and Patreon, which has a monthly newsletter that features analysis and the critique of pop culture. Stu, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, first off, I have to commend you on this amazing book. It was an, a, just a trip down memory lane for me, and uh, there's a lot of things that I had no idea about, and so you did the research for me to find out, and I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, just look at that cover. I'm going to try to not get it with the light, and but uh, just amazing and thick and, a large full, book. and full of information on the hobby that we love. And uh, I guess that's a probably a pretty, pretty good place to jump off as uh, a setup to the book. Can you just tell us, how did you get involved in the hobby in the first place? Oh, I, the, the hobby in general. Uh, yeah. That was... Uh, I was and I know it's, uh, it's in the book. Uh, <laughs> you talk about a bit of your history, but just to kind of to set it up, uh, how did you get to that point where you would be able to write a book like this? And how did you get in the hobby? Yeah, it was like a lifetime of of interest that has kind of just naturally culminated. I I, I wanted to learn more about D and D as as a kid. Uh, wasn't really allowed to kind of con my my grandparents into buying me stuff that my parents weren't approving of. Um, and fueled, I think, mostly by the art and the idea of monsters. I just got into Dungeons and Dragons, and then from there, a whole world opened up. And, uh, I, <laughs> uh, you know, having existed in the analog years when, you know, without the internet, I, I was only limited to what was in the bookstores near me. Um, so uh, about 10, 15 years ago, I started looking stuff up on eBay and seeing all this other role-playing, <laughs> all these other role-playing game products that I was again it was like the art and design the visual stuff that really hooked me first and uh i, I started buying stuff on ebay in large quantities uh and i needed to justify that somehow so i wrote a book and started the well first i started the instagram feed uh then we did the podcast and now there's a book all of which is really just an elaborate way of, of justifying my uh I have seen eBay purchases. So this is just a big tax write-off for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> There's no passion here. This is just... <laughs> Could you imagine? The, the, the scam is out. Okay, we're going to end the interview now. Uh, but it's... Uh, throughout the history, and uh, I mean, reflecting upon my own journey as I was reading your book, uh, I started off with basic red box D&D, and that's how I got my foothold in. And I, I as I mentioned, I'm kind of way up here in Canada, and not a huge population base at the time I was living in a small town. And I remember I went to a convention for the, my very first convention in, into Spokane, which is across the border in the States. And that was the first time I was exposed to other games besides Dungeons and Dragons. And that really spoke to me because, I mean, I love D&D, don't get me wrong, but the little weird oddball games which i kind of grew to love and they'd have these auctions and that kind of stuff and there's games that i had never heard of and i saw them and i was like wow that's so cool and did you have that same experience of like and you live in new jersey uh mm -hmm. or were you in new jersey as a youth as well yep yep grew up here 
And so you probably had maybe perhaps better access because, you know, in that area, um, maybe more players, uh, more stores. But when you did you have that moment yourself where you found different games other than D&D? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I don't know if back in the day you were still really limited by um, by the, 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 the pitfalls of just, you know, analog distribution. So um, I, it, it, it really comes down to like what was available in the stores. And that was, you know, maybe it was more than Calgary, but it, it was not, uh, it was not like, uh, like fields of role-playing games. <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> I, I remember, I like, I never, I, ne I didn't see a RuneQuest product until 10, 15 years ago. Call of Cthulhu was here, but like just RuneQuest never showed up in the stores. So it was, it, it was, there was still uh, sort of um, ghostly hands, you know, deciding what what I, what was in front of me. Um, but that said, I, I did. Uh, I was exposed to other games other than D and D pretty early. Um, I, I couldn't really figure out D and D uh, as a kid. Um, I had the red box and and I played the solo, uh, but like I was also in fourth grade. So like, like I think that like I was a little too young for it um, and it was really baffling. Uh, and I also didn't really have anybody to play with only child. Uh, and it took a little while before I found classmates who, who, who were sort of who had older brothers uh, who played. Uh, and then we started to pit, put it together, but uh, it was Marvel superheroes, the TSR Marvel superheroes game that, that was really, I think, and you know, the the thing that helped like we figured out how to play using that game uh and i think that that is sort of what uh set me on this this uh path of enthusiasm for games outside of dnd because I, I didn't actually learn how to play initially with dnd so it didn't it didn't entirely get its 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 you know its teeth into me um although dnd is by far one of the you know it's it's that in call of cthulhu in terms of the the games i've played most but uh, yeah, no the the the, the wider world the wider world of, of role playing games is just uh, so like I love I love D and D and and but it it's just so much weirder out there than D and D and D and D is a weird game especially when you get into a lot of its design quirks and, and like its monsters and its lore like like there's there's deep strangeness there but the wider hobby is even stranger and it's so gratifying when people sort of make that first step into like just the the the, the vast variety of strangeness uh, and experience different experiences that that are that are available like like it, it you can see people's brains explode and, and so you started like collecting and all the deliveries coming from ebay and the the winning auctions and that kind of thing and you then as you mentioned you started the vintage rpg instagram page and mm -hmm. uh, you started posting and giving a little bit of history on it and uh, that really resonated with a lot of people and uh, i suppose like timing wise when what year did that instagram start approximately uh i think it was april of 2017 and that probably coincided with, uh, you know, uh, the 5e and the growth and explosion um, and uh, Stranger Things and that kind of stuff. Did you know that you would be on that crest of uh, or nostalgia of people getting back into the game of watching Stranger Things and going, boy, I, I forgot how much I love D&D? Yeah, no, absolutely did not. I, I, and I think in my head, 
I thought I think that I thought that that all of it was still um, fairly underground. Like even like uh, Stranger Things, I think debuted in twenty sixteen, um, and even that still felt novel at that time. Like 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 I I, I, didn't, I didn't think that people were interested in Dungeons and Dragons because of that show. I think that I thought that they were interested in in like the 80s generally or like like but the, i felt that the nostalgia was much broader than that uh and then yeah the, the but the i i feel like like we i started the instagram right as 5e was really cresting into it, it it's really big popularity um and then you know of course i i like like i said like it was dnd's cool and it's it's the uh it's the anchor for the the instagram certainly but uh i kind of delight in putting stuff that isn't dnd uh, on on that feed, so that people are constantly like, how do you find this stuff? How does this stuff exist? There, there's like a like just a, a disbelief, <laughs> and it's been it, you know 2017. That's seven years now, uh, <laughs> but like seven years of like surprise and disbelief is 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 a uh, at, at steady intervals is, is 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 maybe my favorite thing about the Instagram. Well, I do love the fact that you like share things with me that I've never found or never learned of before. And then I'm like, I didn't even know that existed. And uh, then it forces me to kind of like dig a little bit deeper. And then essentially what you've done is taken all that information and put it into, into the book. And so what, what was the genesis of the book itself? Uh, Like how did that process happen? So I always kind of felt like the Instagram was like, like a mapping of something note taking uh but without like any kind of formal idea behind it i was just like this this will all be useful at some point it was the idea um and then uh ed park uh who uh, a writer and editor uh whose book just came out uh same event different dreams fantastic uh novel um he hit me up a couple of years ago i guess it was 2020 and he was just like you should write a book it's like I love your feed. You should write a book. I said, like, "Yeah, get out of here." <laughs> that, that, that's that's no, that nobody's going to buy this book. And he's just like, "No, let's get you an agent and, and see." Uh, and then the agent uh, tried, uh, and but couldn't get um, because it wasn't D and D focused enough. The the big publishers sort of passed on it, uh, and then and then uh, but I, I wound up kind of just writing the book anyway. I invested the time in the pitch, and and it sort of everything kind of crystallized. And then um, one of my Call of Cthulhu players is at MIT Press. And he's just like, I want your book. So, okay. <laughs> so, and there we go. There's a book. And uh, for like, I have a lot of, uh, you know, aspiring game designers and uh, people that want to publish their own books and that kind of thing. Uh, getting an agent and uh, pitching to publishers and that kind of thing. What What's that process kind of look like? Because it's probably different, like strictly like tabletop role-playing game publishing and then like, mass uh book publishing yeah (laughs) getting an agent was cool and and it was really nice to have somebody um in in my corner in a way that i i've never had before i've I've always been uh i I, you know i'm unwinnable as an independent publication you know I, i i i tend to do everything on my own uh and and the diy spirit that is from role-playing games. I really internalized that into in my working life. Um, so it was really nice to have, even though it didn't, you know, ultimately work out. 
uh, it was really nice to have an agent. Um, it kind of changed my mindset about what was possible and what, what I could do. Um, I, pitching publishers is like the worst thing in the world. And I, because you're, you're putting a lot of energy into like trying to, to, to do yourself justice and your idea justice while also trying to find the ways it's marketable and to hook somebody um, while also having to kind of acknowledge that they have a whole web of concerns that have nothing to do with you or your project or even book publishing uh, specific. It's it, like, it, it, I don't know. It's a very strange business. And I'm, I'm, because I'm so DIY, I think that I'm, I'm not, I'm not like naturally like, what, why are we doing it this way? Why can't we, why can't we do this better? Um, was it like you go in there with a pitch deck, like, like into a boardroom and go this and this, or at the time, maybe it was uh, zoom meetings and that kind of thing. But well, like, thankfully I didn't have to do anything. I, I, I wrote the pitch and we put together the pitch materials and then Paul like brought it to people and, 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 and showed it off because I, I'm not a dog and pony show guy. Um, and like that, that's another cool thing about an agent is that what, if you have one, like they do all that stuff. <laughs> that's great. Cause I think that a lot of writer folks and creative folks are just constitutionally incapable of doing that. <laughs> I certainly am. Like it would, it would just, it would, the cost on my, uh, psyche would be, uh, too much. I wouldn't be able to write, um, you know, I'd be too concerned about the, the anxieties of presenting. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was just, and, it, and it's slow DIY. Yeah. I am in control and I can, I can set the pace at, you know, to, so the idea of having to wait so long to do stuff, uh, is like, again, would I like, I just oil and water kind of thing. The, the great thing about working with MIT press was that, uh, they were sort of like when they, when they picked up the book, they were like, well, this is going to be a 2024 book. I was like, no, this has to be a 2023 book. We have to get it out before the 50th anniversary of Dungeons and Dragons buries everything. And they were like, well, we can't really do that. And I was like, I can. <laughs> so we, like, they, they kind of farmed out the production to me and we, and I delivered the book in, in, in a much shorter time frame uh, than, than it would have happened if it was part of their larger production scheme. Uh, so that was really cool that they, they kind of gave me the ability to kind of, you know, move it along. Wow. So, I mean, that's actually uh, a feat unto itself because did you source the printers and uh, everything to that length? We, we just, we just did all of the actual production on the book. So, so the writing, editing, layout, art, um, the photography, and, and uh, that was all done by, by me and my, my folks. They did the index and uh, some of the co cover uh, specs and they sourced printing and, and all the logistics side of it uh, was MIT press. Okay. Uh, well, that's good. Cause I mean, that's usually the pitfall of most uh, designers is they can get into the layout and the, the making it, but then what's the uh, printing and production and distribution. That's always a bit of a black hole for many folks, I would say. Yeah. Definitely um, a different set of skills. Yeah, definitely. And, and as far as like, um, like how much uh, editing and that kind of thing went on in the, in, and how long did it take to kind of like put the original draft together? The original draft took about six months. Um, and then editing, you know, the whole product, our production cycle, which included 
there was a line editor, copy editor, uh, a um, what do you call it? a fact checker, uh, and a sensitivity reader uh, that all had to be reconciled with the text. Uh, and that's a, with layout and Kyle's art and the photography all took three months. So nine months of of production uh, to get the book from word one to delivering the final manuscript, basically. And when you used, did you use the Instagram post as a jumping off point? Like, did you have all those digitally and it, and, and then you eventually like kind of put them into sequence? Uh, I think, I, yeah, I do. I, do I, I think at some point, all of the stuff that was already written as an Instagram post was part of the, like, like, like a working list or a working manuscript. And then, uh, I'm I'm sure that if you if you did like like keyword like phrase searches in the book if you had a digital copy of the book versus like certain entries in the Instagram you would find sentences that were carried over from the Instagram but for the most part it was it was it was a a guide rather than like a a, a scaffolding so most almost everything was rewritten and expanded upon but it definitely was like like the starting point and it helped me. Um, it helped me get like the list that I had everything. I had a, a hutch on my desk at the time and it would have the books that we were, I was writing about in chronological order um, to kind of also the, the whole book was written in chronological order too um, uh, in terms of the products chronology. Uh, and the Instagram definitely helped kind of arrange that and figure out what was important and what like uh I, I can only really fit like 280 words in an Instagram post and um, a big guide for what got into the book was what products and, and games merited more than that 280 words. Uh, so yeah, the it's, it's Instagram was, was, was a big tool in, in sort of arranging the whole thing. And sorry, I'm probably delving too much into like how the sausage was made and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but well, I find it fascinating is, is, uh, and the other question I had was like you you took pictures of the uh, covers of many of the books and did you have to get permission from the publishers or anything or is that kind of fair use? Um, we, uh, my position's always been that it's 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 fair use. Uh, that was actually a sticking point for some of the publishers that 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 we we pitched to. Uh, the, the, I, the publishers are just sort of scared, I think, of of that. Um, the, the reason that there is no interior art is partly because of space, partly because that would have been uh, more of an issue in terms of needing permission, uh, which I'm sure I could have gotten. But like, again, like, like it's a big book and there just wasn't room as much as I would have liked for a particular uh, group of, of entries I, I think would have benefited from in having interior art. Um, I could have gotten it, but it, it, we just didn't have the space. Uh, and the words seem more important, but um, no, I think that the, uh, the rightly MIT Press agreed with me that that um, because these were objects, literal like commercial products that I owned physically were in my presence. You know, like I and these are photographs that I am taking of them. That they're, I'm not reproducing files. Uh, that that this was uh, a, a satisfaction of, of fair use, um, and also like nobody's. <laughs> Why would you? Why would you take it? The the, the covers themselves. I, I I understand why you would maybe take umbrage at, at the reproduction of an interior image, especially like a map or something that could be used in play. 
uh, as sort of violating copyright and, and lowering the your ability to sell the product. But the covers are designed as public-facing advertisements for your products. Uh, and I, I don't think that you could really successfully argue that um, we're, me reproducing them in the context of this celebratory book was, you know, uh, a violation of your rights, I, I, I think. And, and obviously, for the most part, a, a lot of the posts or the uh, the pieces in the book were positive reflections of the, the product. So it's not like... Uh, you know, you critique somebody and they're like, guess what? I'm going to give a frivolous lawsuit and shut you down. <laughs> the The entire book is shut down because of one misspelled word or something like that. Yeah. I mean, and, and like that, that I, I, I am critical when I, when I, I feel the need to be, but I think that it comes from a pl place of love in all, uh, in all the, the, the instances. I mean, it, in the introduction, we, we I talk about why certain things aren't in the book, and it's literally just, I don't want to write about them. I don't want to spend my time writing about stuff that I think is crummy or, or exploitative or, um, you know, horrible. <laughs> so, so yeah, we do focus more on the positive of the book. And I think that, that it's a celebration. It, you know, it, these are, it would stink if I put together this book and was you know, pointing signs to like, check out all of these games that aren't D and D, but man, look at how crummy they are. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that wouldn't serve our purpose because they're not, they're great. They're, they're, and how, how much did you like pull, like how much research did you have to do? Like to fill in some of the gaps that might, you might not have known like off the top of your head of it, maybe products that you had that you went, I, I better like kind of like delve a little bit deeper and how much research did you do? For some of them compared to like you know more obvious ones like call of cthulhu that like maybe you had like better knowledge of but maybe some of the products that you were like hmm i didn't actually know that about that were there surprises oh there's tons of surprises everything everything about this the whole vintage rpg experience is 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 based on on like a steady amount of surprises like I, there's always something weird or new or bizarre uh to find and uh that was true with the book it's been true in the wake of the book like i found i found so many more odd games since then um like i can't i can't even tell you the last one because there's there's been so many um no it, the the research though is is interesting I, i'm not an academic or, at all and i'm, I'm not um for scholarly uh I, i'm a college dropout <laughs> um which my wife thinks is hilarious that I got published by MIT Press uh, as a college dropout. Um, the so like I, I I don't I don't have any formal kind of like research training and and I, I don't I just kind of like shoot from the hip really and uh, there was a ton of me learning more and more stuff, especially in in, in this it's it starts in the seventies and and kind of through the 80s uh, it, it, it kind of goes like this and then by the 90s like like I basically what I was presenting was stuff that I, I I knew largely I think because like I was I was I was a full human being by then like like the, the 70s stuff was basically before my time and the 80s I was a kid um so but the 90s and, and on is lived experience and it, you you could see that that I had to I had to reach out to people to interview them for the 70s and 80s where and and I think the only interview I did after the 80s is James Wallace in, in 99 for, for Baron Munchausen. 
Uh, and I, I just felt like I had a handle on it. And it just wasn't, um, I've been thinking about this in terms of uh, Janelle Jaquay's passing. Uh, and, and I just reprinted the, the entirety of our, our interview. Um, and her books, the, the they were such singular, like, just she was all of Dark Tower and Caverns of Thracia. It, it, it made sense to just go directly to her and ask her, how'd you do this? Instead of me trying to figure out how she did that. Um, and the need for that kind of just, it, everything became more communal as time went on because there's such a, a body of collaboration. Um, e even though the whole thing is very do it yourself, like like we are doing it ourselves uh, in, in as part of a distributed network of everybody doing it yourself. So there's a lot of tools. Uh, and, and I feel like, like it, everything became less singular and I was able to comment on it more uh, without having to do research. I have to say though, that uh, Shannon Applecline's series of books, like, like foundational for my book. Like if, if, the, if he hadn't written those books, I would have had a much harder time writing my book. Uh, and I'm super in his debt for having written those. And I should probably at this point mention, I have uh, an interview uh, with Shannon about his books. Uh, I'll put the link up above. And uh, for three years in a row, I've had uh, Shannon join me for the year-end review. Uh, so I'll also put that link. And we this last year, we talked about the OGL fiasco and all the all the what stuff that you could imagine. Yeah, what a mess. <laughs> and, and maybe that brings us to my next question, which is uh, like you, the cutoff point. I mean, obviously on the title of the book, the subtitle is uh, a guide to tabletop role-playing games from D&D to Mothership. So mm -hmm. you're cut off at Mothership. Um, why did you choose Mothership as kind of like that endpoint? Mothership sort of signifies um, my re-entry into uh, sort of contemporary role-playing games. Like, like um, I came into Vintage RPG as somebody who was sort of excavating, excavating the past uh, and games that I had played. Uh, but Mothership was very much, uh, and, and the zines scene uh, that it has sort of, it, it didn't create the zine scene, but it definitely kind of like exploded it and popularized it. Um, it, 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 it led me into talking to and interfacing with people who are creating games now, like the, the, the scene as it is. So I, I felt like Mothership was, uh, really emblematic of, of, of where role-playing games are and are going. Um, the formal cutoff of the book is 2020, uh, just because that was like the when I was writing it. So I tried to get as much, keep it as close to up-to-date as possible. Uh, and it's it's hilarious how how much has happened since 2020. <laughs> like, all, like Karen, how, did, how is Karen not in my book? But it just wasn't out yet. Um, but like, it, it, there's just... It, it's, it's, it's a cool hobby because it is constantly churning uh, new, new. People are constantly making new things. And then uh, it leads to my next question of like the state of the hobby of like now reflecting upon the, the whole history that you kind of put together and where it potentially could go. Do you, what, do you have any kind of, if you were reading the tea leaves of like, where's things, where are things going because of, like reflecting upon the past, is there any kind of through line that you see happening? I mean, I think that uh, there's a gnat in here, uh, which is weird because it's January. How does a gnat live in January? Um, I think that, that that there's 
there's clear patterns in how the industry has kind of worked over time. Um, but I, I also kind of think that they're a little bit of a trap in terms of, of predicting what's going to happen next. I do think that there's a, there's an up and down that's very, you know, baked into this hobby, especially because it's so small. And I think that we collectively forget how small this hobby really is. Uh, D and D kind of changes the, 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 the math, but if you remove D and D very small, <laughs> like not a lot of money, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of enthused creators. Um, I think that, <sighs> I don't know. I, I think that we're, we're in for, I, I think that the market is naturally contracting, right? So in 2020 with the pandemic and everything, there was just an increased interest in role-playing games generally uh, brought a lot of people in. Uh, but I think that a lot of that interest was faddish and, and while it converted a lot of new people, I think that, that people also went on their way once the pandemic ended. Um, I think that that's worse for D and D than it is for the, the broader role-playing game industry, especially how diverse that industry has become. There's just so many different people playing so many different games. I think that, that, uh, I, I think that oh, I'm hoping <laughs> that we see some a more a leveling of the the the, the scales, a balancing of the scales, and we see D and D taking up less of the oxygen, and all of these other fabulous games getting more attention. Um, I, I certainly think that there's there's the potential for that to happen. Whether or not you know uh, a bunch of DIY folks can you know actively uh, and separately uh, counteract like huge corporate forces. Who knows? But it's a weird world. Well, it's, it's interesting. It seems uh, I don't. I don't want to call them ankle biters, <laughs> but it kind of feels like there's a lot of people that are trying to compete uh, with D and D right now, and like kind of dethrone them. And it's almost a collective effort. <laughs> and that's why I say ankle biters. But by no means are they ankle biters because they're like in our industry or in the hobby, they're big. Yeah, you know, like Matt Colville and and that kind of things. But there's like a lot of people. They're all taking their little chops at the big tree trunks of D and D right now. So we'll see if six uh, E or whatever they're going to call it is going to be a flop, and uh, these other ones kind of are there to fill the vacuum, like uh, Pathfinder did. So interesting times, I would say. Yeah, and 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 I feel like the. I feel like the D and D likes are sort of uh, obfuscating the, the the larger industry. Like 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 everybody uh, sort of focuses on like the 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 ankle biters as you call them, uh, and Pathfinder and 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 even the OSR as a it, it's all still D and D. And I think that that there is um, a a chance for for the non D and D games to sort of blossom. Uh, into in, in, into a fuller kind of uh, experience. I, 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 you know, Call of Cthulhu is 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 almost is always in the conversation as one of the, the the larger, more prevalent role playing games. But as soon as everybody starts talking about D anD D, it's just D anD D stuff. And and I like Vampire the Masquerade. I'm not sure where their current game is, but like in the '90s, like that was a really big, completely different sort of game. Uh, and I think that there's just I think that the, the the way that a lot of the 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 ultralight games like um, 
by Karen, even though it is still essentially a D&D stripped to the bone, I, I feel like there's there's pathways for us to find new modes of play that, that could be um, competitive with, with on, on, on large scales. We'll see. And, you know, maybe reflecting upon, you had a lot of different games other than D&D, but a, a lot of them were fantasy-based. And the genre is kind of maybe the thing that really drives it. How come... Do you have a kind of thought on why fantasy seems to be the go-to genre? Um, I don't. I, I agree with you. I, I and I think that by for some reason it just works really well with with the uh, the idea the, the the framework of role playing games. Um, and it always has. Uh, it took a long time for there not to be a, a, a fantasy game. Even 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 Bunnies and Burrows is essentially D and D with rabbits. It's not um, it's not like the Warren where you're trying to simulate maybe like a uh, a more naturalistic bunny experience. Um, if uh, we're gonna have to quote that more, <laughs> a more naturalistic bunny experience, gonna, that's the tagline on the book. There you go. <laughs> um, I think that uh, I think that it, I, I think that it's sort of it, it probably is a, a self-reinforcing thing. D and D is fantasy, uh, so fantasy is role-playing games. Kind of just like a like a I don't want to say a vicious cycle, but like a self-reinforcing uh, system. Um, especially, I do believe that that D and D has really. Uh, stewarded or, or 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 heavily influenced uh, the lang the visual language of fantasy in the broader sort of population. Like I, I think that 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 you know folks outside of role playing games who like fantasy are are primed to like D and D because D and D has has just sort of dominated like the 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 way that I don't think that a lot of people have read Dragonlance novels. You know, mm -hmm. as, as much as like like you know, Game of Thrones is a, a, a crossover book, right? But the the that Larry Elmore aesthetic in the '80s really changed the way fantasy in general presented itself, and I think I think that 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 has sort of become like a a, a tentpole of, of of the genre, and that that feeds back in. So when people think, oh, I want to play, I want to play fantasy you know role-playing game like they think that, that that's the way that to do it and i think that there's just there's something self-reinforcing about all that um i don't know why though it because and traveler and star wars and call of cthulhu like they're, they're not fantasy and they work just as well but there's something about dungeons too and and it, i think that dungeons are sort of the singular thing that kind of came out of D, &D. like like not I mean, yeah, it's in the name, but this idea of the constrained space where you have lots of options, but you only ever have like two or three of them in front of you at a given time. Um, I think that the, the, that play loop, the way that that, that, that presents play um, is naturally kind of aesthetically tied to fantasy well. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't vibrate the same way when you put it in a starship as much as I'd like it to. Um, or, or an office building or, 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 or similar. Um, like the dungeon, it, it, it's, there's something about it that like, like it, it speaks to like a, like a myth, mythological headspace. Uh, 
that I think pulls role-playing games to fantasy in a, in, I don't know. Yeah, and I mean, uh, we talked a little bit prior to even uh, do setting up the recording, and I said, oh, I really love the Ghostbusters section of uh, the book because Ghostbusters is like one of my favorite games. And uh, shameless plug, Bugbusters uh, <laughs> is a game that I'm producing. It's like an homage, I suppose, uh, in some respects, a spiritual, uh, if you, if I can say that, of uh, a successor of uh, Ghostbusters type of thing. Where I'm, but I I find like when you start to get into the adventures like in setting up the adventures, it gets difficult because you have to set it prior to cell phones or the internet and uh, like in modern times. And then like, so there's so many like escape clauses, like, well, we'll just call the police. We'll just like, and do all those things. So it like makes it more difficult to kind of fine tune how the game works without the modern amenities, so to speak of what a game is and same with sci-fi like well do you have faster than light travel do you have like wormholes do you have that kind of thing and it starts to get complicated whereas a dungeon and your world that you create it doesn't have any political ramifications it doesn't have like any of the stuff that we've gotten like call of cthulhu or any of those types of things it's just like a standalone there it is there's a dungeon the loop that as you say you go in you discover and you might die, but that's part of the process. And right. it seems to be like the the easier way to play. And I think over time, it just kind of builds up. That's at least my kind of take. That, on it. And it's it's so naturally constraining, but interesting. Like you always want to know what's behind the next door or, or down the next pa passageway. And the the fact that like it that's just. I think that everything else about early oh, original Dungeons and Dragons is kind of like mm, it has become uh, standard for for so many role playing games. But I think that the dungeon is the thing that the that really made Dungeons and Dragons the classic that it is. It's just it's just this it, it works so well and it, it it it's so it's so plastic, right? Like it, like you can apply it to so many different situations. There's like like there's an infinity of dungeons like yeah. and and that's just if you limit it to the fantasy style dungeon like like it like once you start trying to port it into like the human mind or the a business uh, the an office building or a starship like like you can constantly try and and, and map that to different experiences and it, it will always be different but always constrained in the same sort of ways it's it's super Super weird, man. Like, how did they do that? <laughs> how did they crack that code? Like, ah. Yeah. Well, it's like a well, generational accomplishment. Yeah. It's, uh, and when you think about the history of it and how, like, would it have been invented otherwise? Maybe, maybe not. And it's it impacted so many of us over the years and, like, become, like, a foundational part of who we are as people, like, in the yeah. hobby that, like, it's just a way to connect with people. Uh, I know that uh, I have been reflecting upon this, like just as I'm getting older and I'm seeing, you know, there's like perhaps an epidemic of lonely older men in the world. And, uh, you know, they bond over like, you know, traditional things like, you know, sports, hunting, fishing, that type of thing. But you see it a lot of it uh, in role playing games, too. It's a way to connect with people and build communities and. Uh, and not just to limit it to men, but I've, you know, I can't help but know that uh, in the early days of D and D, that was a big population of that. So um, it's 
you know, fantastic hobby. I love it. Right. Yeah. No, and, and it's like, there's something about dungeons too, that, that uh, like there's a shared experience across all dungeons, right? Like they all work basically the same so that we can always talk about a dungeon crawl it using the, and it, using its same language that's developed around it. So like, like there's just a commonality there. It, it, like, whereas like, um, something like if I'm talking about my mass and Nihilathotep game, like that, like you have no, you don't necessarily have uh, points of reference for that because it's just like, it's world travel. Is it Indiana Jones? Like, like, like there's a lot of stuff that, that like, that's just variable there. Whereas like holes in the ground, you know, and, and, and the fact, the fact that like, it's so, I read an underland now by uh, Robert McFarlane and it's all about like exploring actual underground subterranean spaces of, natural human made whatever they're awful like they're, they're they're awful in completely different ways than the fictional fantasy dungeon is uh like it, it, that's that's another thing that kind of blows my mind yeah, when i see those like underground exploring in paris and i'm like that's panic inducing to me when i see yeah. somebody get stuck <laughs> yeah, like... getting stuck is just the worst thing and, and there's just really nothing in the game that 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 correlates to that. Like, like I've never had a situation in a Dungeons and Dragons game where I was worried about players getting stuck. Like, yeah. But it happens all the time in caving and it's horrible. Oh, well, you know, to switch gears a little bit here, uh, let's talk about the unwinnable um, media empire that you've built. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, how did, how did that start in, in conjunction with everything else that you've been doing? Oh God. Uh, so, this is terrible, but I, I started writing about video game. I was working at the New York Daily News, uh, and there was space in in their website at the time uh, to kind of just sort of write stuff that you were passionate about. So I, I I got it in my head that I could try and get the 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 latest Grand Theft Auto, which I think was four at the time, um, as a review copy, and that I could write about it. Um, it didn't work. Uh, they didn't send me one. Um, but, uh, I did start writing about video games for the New York daily news. And then from that, I just sort of, uh, met other people who were writing about video games. And from that, because I have this DIY disease, I was just like, well, I'm going to start my own site. And I started the unwinnable website back in 2010 forever ago. Um, that went really well. People were interested. It, it's, um, because I wasn't really interested in just doing typical reviews. I, I, I'm interested in like creative nonfiction and, and sort of memoir and, and the different ways that that play uh, kind of interacts with our lives. It just reviews and previews and, and the regular video game journalism thing just didn't really appeal to me. But I thought I, I, I thought that there were other modes of writing that would be interesting. Uh, and other people also thought that. So it was sort of a natural collaboration. And then in 2014, we kickstarted a digital magazine. Um, and we kind of just went from there. Uh, it's all collaborative. It's all very low, um, low risk. Like it, it, it's, it's a lot of memoir. Um, and we, it, it, it's everything now. It's, it, it's called unwinnable and we focus a lot on video games, but there's, there's, you know, movies, TV, we talk about everything. There's, there's unwinnable monthly, the website and then uh, exploits is sort of like a cultural diary recommendations and stuff. Um, 
I, yeah. I happened to uh, stumble across the uh, exploits issue where you talked about uh, Magna PI versus Miami Vice. And, <laughs> and I couldn't help. I'm reading this, and uh, you had mentioned that you, you and your wife watched all Magnum episodes, like, you know, from the beginning to the end, and you and the difference between watching that and Miami Vice. But first of all, there's no way I could watch that many Magnum movies with my wife because, like, she would never, ever find me acceptable in any kind of frame. <laughs> I, I, just, like it, I always say if uh, we ever met Tom Selleck, I just go, okay, well, I guess I'll take my ring off and you can have your <laughs> hall pass or whatever you can do because she loves Magnum. And uh, I just, but anyways, uh, but the, the stories like that, that, I find that fascinating when you look at the, the cultural critique of, reflecting upon that time of Magnum versus Miami Vice and the difference between the two. And, and uh, I love that kind of pop culture critique. And and how do you come up with your topics? Like, is it just kind of your own experiences? Yeah, I mean, like, like I, I, I was so taken by the fact that, that you know, like I, I, I watched Magnum when I was a kid. And when I, over time, I just sort of applied this like, oh, it's like Miami Vice. He's a cool guy in a cool place and like fast cars, bikinis and and, and whatever. And then so I was just like in a, a fit of like, I want to nostalgia and I want to revisit this. I, I started watching it and he's a doofus. He's like an absolute he's like a lost boy. Like <laughs> it's so not what lived in my head all those years. And, and it was so much better than I really was willing to give it credit for reflexively. Like, like it's a really interesting show about like a bunch of guys like doing their best. <laughs> it just really appealed to me. And I was just like, like I needed to tell the world, like, wait, we need to reevaluate Magnum a little bit. He's not, it's different. Um, and yeah, it, 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 yeah, almost everything that I write about is just like something that I find that it, I think is interesting enough that, that merits, um, sort of sharing and and like one of the things with the book is that like I was I was really I don't know why I'm surprised by this but um it was the amount of people who were just like I read the introduction to your book and it was just like it felt so like like it resonated so strongly with me I was like why it, like that was my personal story really but like but there's 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 universal stuff in there and and I think that that when when you're telling a personal story you're you're, you're also speaking to something larger naturally and people try and find the commonalities uh and i think that that's sort of what i'm interested in in with writing and storytelling is, is finding those commonalities well as a latchkey kid and a pop culture enthusiast uh everything you do kind of speaks to me as well uh it's uh i never got into video games uh i was after atari i was like okay i'm moving on <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, and it, I love all the content. And then uh, just to kind of finish off, uh, you and John Hambone McGuire, uh, I've got an interview with John talking about Action 321 that uh, he's made and all the good uh, subgenres and games that he's made from that. Um, how did that podcast start? I know he's given you tons of credit for his initiation into the hobby. Um, he was just getting into, he like just sort of got into the idea of podcasts and he was just like, Stu, let's, 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 let's do a podcast. And I was just like, eh, I don't, I don't want to talk. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> wants to hear me rattle on. Like I write, I, that's my, my thing. My brand is typed words, not, not spoken words. 
but he was just like, no, come on, let's try it and like see how it is. And 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 then we we sat down and tried. We we I think we recorded the first episode, the pilot episode, like four or five times. And I was just like, this is just never gonna work. But then like that sixth time, whatever the last time was, it was just like everything clicked. We stopped sort of like being like totally aware of what we were doing, and we just like had a conversation about stuff, and uh, it was really fun. <laughs> and I think that um, as much as I was just like, I don't want to talk to people about this stuff, I, so I didn't. And I've all of the 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 podcast episodes are either me talking to Hambone and sort of explaining these weird things that I found so that he can like benefit from it and similar to how I write, or I'm just talking to myself about them and working through my ideas in a way that would help me convey them. Like a lot of the book comes out of the way, like me rattling on about, you know, I got 15, 20 minutes. I got to fill, <laughs> you know, I got to, you know, about RuneQuest, like quick, what's interesting. And how do I make this interesting? And, and, and uh, thinking on my feet about these things, uh, it, it, it helps me to write, I think, in a way that that allows uh, reading them to be entertaining and, and, and edifying uh, and not like stereo instructions. Well, it's a great podcast. I look forward to getting it uh, every week. And uh, it's definitely if you're not subscribed to it on any of the platforms, make sure you check it out. That's Vintage RPG Podcast. Um, and I'll put all the links in the show notes in the description, uh, so you can check it out. And, and as we, you know, come to the end here, what's next? Are you, do you, are you going to do another book in the future from mothership until who knows? <laughs> I would love to do another book, uh, of, of similar size and scope. Uh, now that I've done dealt with like what I think of is mostly important for Dungeons and Dragons and like, just focus on all of the more oddball stuff. Um, I could definitely fill another book that size. Would it be as interesting without D and D? But it's worth a shot. Um, but if I do something like that, it would be a little bit uh, down the line. Uh, the next thing I have going on uh, in hopefully spring of next year, I'll have uh, a book called Down 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 uh, coming out through Stranger Tractor, which is uh, a look at dungeons. It uh, basically the idea. Um, sort of builds off the appendix in, in Monsters, Aliens, and Holes in the Ground about dungeons uh, and how there's no there's no real corollary to the fantasy dungeon in our world or in our fiction and mythology before Dungeons & Dragons. The, the dungeon of Dungeons & Dragons is unique, uh, but I try and go back to sources, subterranean sources and kind of pull quotes from them. So like Beowulf and, and uh, uh, Paradise Lost, Dante, uh, right up to, you know, uh, George MacDonald, um, Tolkien, Moria, you know, anything that seemed like, oh, this seems informative of the, 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 the dungeon as I understand it now and tried to collect uh, quotes to kind of paint that picture. And after, D &D, you know, D&D &D, and then right up until 2020, I, I pull from role-playing games too in hopes of trying to paint a picture of like what this, this, psychological because it, it it's like a, it's a it's a brain space right it, it isn't a physical space it's it's this weird mental place that we inhabit and explore uh trying to get kind of get a uh, a fix on that so it, it's a it's a collection of quotes and then it's followed by uh commentary on all of the sources uh 
and it's it, I don't know it's a, it's a weird ass book, but it, it was really fun to write, and uh, I think I think people be into it. Hopefully, cool. And you think it's going to be out uh, next year? Is that what you said? Hopefully, spring, definitely fall of twenty twenty five. Cool. Well, we look forward to that, and uh, when it's complete, please come back on the show and uh, share with us uh, all your findings. And and uh, I'm sure it's going to be just as interesting as. Uh, monsters, aliens, and holes in the ground, and it, and where can people get the book? They can find uh, it fine bookstores worldwide. Um, if they don't have it, you can ask them to order it, and they should be able to get it. Uh, if not, you can get it directly from MIT Press's uh, site. Uh, we have. Don't forget that there is a regular edition and a deluxe edition in a slipcase that is really handsome as well. Uh, yeah. Cool. Well, I'll I'll have all those links in the show notes in the description. And uh, Stu, I just want to say uh, thanks for coming on the show. Awesome book, love it. Love your podcast. Uh, you're doing incredible work. And I uh, just want to say uh, on behalf of probably a lot of people that walk down memory lane reading the book, thank you. It uh, it, it will never cease to bowl me over that a that the book exists and b that people like. I mean, it's nice that they like it, but that it seems to speak to something like deep inside the the, the people who who uh, have chosen this hobby, and like it's just like like it, it it's overwhelming. It's it's really nice to to hear it. And thanks for having me on. Well, it's been my pleasure to have you on. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs>